0: friends we just celebrated Easter and you know for for a lot of people Easter is at best a wonderful story and it's nice Um, but according to the Bible according to Christians if Easter isn't true if Jesus didn't raise from the dead then Christianity is garbage the Apostle Paul in first Corinthians 15 says if the resurrection didn't occur If it's not true, then among all people, Christians are the most to be pitied, because we're wasting our time. We believe in a lie, and everything we're doing is useless. So the question is, can we believe in the resurrection? Should we believe in the resurrection? So I want us to talk about two issues. Can we believe it historically, and can we believe it emotionally? Um, so I'm going to just cover, cover some topics quickly. Um, and so on the historical side, I want us to look at some historical background and two facts that need an explanation. Okay, so first, on the can I believe it historically. So I think sometimes people say, well, you know, people back then, they'd believe anything. So they, they're inclined to believe that somebody rose from the dead. But today, you know, we know better. And that just is getting history wrong. It's not the case that people back then, you know, went around believing all the time that people rose from the dead. Um, Jesus raising bodily from the dead was a preposterous claim then, just as it is now. People were skeptical then too. And in fact, the first century, um, first century people um, were very much inclined not to believe in the claim that a man had physically, bodily raised from the dead. So first, the Jews were not inclined to believe it. Because for them, you might say, well, of course Jews believed in the resurrection. For the Jews, the resurrection occurred at the end of history. It was something that happened when God judged the whole earth. He would resurrect everybody, the good to a resurrection of life, the bad to a resurrection of judgment. But it happened at the end of history. Nobody ever believed that resurrection was an event that would happen in the middle of history to a single person. And secondly, the Jews, of all people in the world, were the least likely to believe that a man was God. This was the thing that got Jesus killed, was the Pharisees saying, you claim to be God, you cannot do that. So to say, well, you know, the the Jews would believe that, that God would come down and resurrect somebody, they didn't believe it. There was this utter transcendence, God was God and man was man. And so for them to believe that this man claimed to be God and rose from the dead in the middle of history was preposterous to first century Jews. So Jews were not inclined to believe it. Second, the Greeks and Romans weren't inclined to believe it. Now they've got a completely different set of hangups on why the resurrection wouldn't occur. But the main reason is um, the Greeks, the Jews, their belief was that um, the hope for eternity was escaping the body. The body, in their view, was was evil or dirty or imperfect or, you know, somewhere the body wasn't the thing that lasted forever that we wanted to resurrect. The hope in Greco-Roman thought was escaping the body and living in a disembodied eternity. Right. So just your, your spirit or your soul, you know, would live on. But the body was just, you know, that's it. You've escaped this this tent. That was the that was the Greco-Roman view. So for them, the claim that somebody would have risen from the dead. First of all, they'd say, why would you want that? That's not the goal. The goal is to get away from the body to get away from the physical, to escape this mortal prison. So they wouldn't even want it. But second, it would be far from proof that a man was God. Because again, if the body was evil or dirty or imperfect, proof that something, somebody was God would be that they escaped from it, not that they're still trapped in it. So for the Greeks and the Romans, the A a resurrected man would not prove that he was God. Um, So it's not the kind of thing that people would be inclined to believe. You know, we may have our hang-ups today, but they had just as many hang-ups in the past um, as we would. So in that context, there were many witnesses to this preposterous claim. So Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 said that Jesus appeared to 500 people at once. Now, this is a letter that was written 15 to 20 years after the events of the day, which means a lot of people, Paul is claiming, a lot of people who saw the risen Jesus would still be alive at the time of the letter. They would still be eyewitnesses who could say, this is what we saw. Very importantly, too, the first witnesses... Who are recorded as encountering the risen Jesus are not the people who would have the most legal credibility if they were called to witness in court. Now something about the first century context is there was a very extreme hierarchy and the people who are at the bottom who didn't have legal credible witness were women. And yet the first witnesses, the first people that Jesus appears to, that the angels say Jesus has risen, Um, are women. Now, if you were making up this account, and this is something that historians have said, if you were making up an account and you wanted to sort of get a religion off the ground, you would want your accounts to have as much credibility as possible. So making up that the first witnesses were women would be, well, it would be very counterproductive. The only reason you would do that, the only reason you would say the first witnesses are women, is if they were so the, there's many witnesses, the witnesses are not something that some people who would serve the cause of creating a new religion, um, and the other thing that's amazing about the witnesses is that they are um, honest and realistic about doubts. So, you know, we might think, well, you know, people are, are making this up and they're saying, you know, we just, we all believe, and, you know, this is bolstering the church Um, But if you read the Gospels, some of the accounts at the end, they say people heard the accounts and some believed, but it says, but others doubted. And so that's, again, if you're creating an account and trying to sort of build this religion, it would be very (laughs) counterproductive to your claims to say, well, some of the early leaders in the church, they doubted. Why would you do that? You would do that if it was true, and, and it would be true if people found this to be a hard thing to believe. The early leaders found it hard to believe. And yet the evidence brought them to the place of belief. So the best example of this is Thomas, doubting Thomas, who at first he says, I will not believe unless I put my hands in his fingers, unless I put my hands in his side. If I don't do that, I won't believe. And so Jesus appears to him and says, touch my hand, touch my side, see and Thomas's response is belief. I mean, we should really call him believing Thomas because he first said I want evidence. He got the evidence and he didn't say, "Well, this is too preposterous to believe." In light of the evidence, he moved from his position of doubting to belief. That evidence was strong enough for him to overturn his previous doubt. So, this was a very difficult claim to believe, and yet there were many witnesses to this claim. Now, there are two historical facts that you have to be able to explain. Because you might say, well, you know, I don't know. I don't want to have to take a side. Some people say believe this. Some people don't. But you, you're you not off the hook because there's, you know, the way we do history is there's historical facts and you need an explanation. So one historical fact is that the tomb was empty. And I might say, well, how do we know that the tomb was empty? Well, one reason we know that the tomb is empty is that nobody disputes this. There was lots of opposition to Christianity early on, but there's no evidence, there's no evidence that early opposition to Christianity ever claimed that the tomb wasn't empty. Which is a, a rather remarkable thing, given how much opposition there was to Christianity, to, to the church early on, if the, if the tomb wasn't empty, people would have said so, or at least people would have accused so. But nobody disputes this. And the Pharisees and the Romans both would have had tremendous incentive to produce a body. If there was a body in a tomb, they would have produced it. The Romans were very good at you know accomplishing what they wanted to. The Pharisees wanted to squash Christianity. The Romans wanted to squash Christianity. That's why they persecuted it. But nobody ever produced a body and said, here's Jesus. Here he is. We found him. Um, And, you know, another sort of remarkable thing is that Christians themselves lost the tomb. Nobody knows where it is. And, you know, in those days, a martyr, people knew where he was buried or or just some some famous person, Um, people would know where this person, where he or she was buried, and people would go and visit the tomb. But nobody did that with Jesus. Why? Because the tomb was no longer significant. Now, if there were people who believed that, no, he didn't rise from the dead and he's there, then they would have kept the tomb and they would know where it was and they would have made visits. But early Christians lost lost the tomb. Why would they do that? Because the tomb wasn't important. Because it wasn't full. So that's the first fact that needs an explanation. You can't get off the hook. Um, the second fact that you need an explanation for is the growth of the church. You need to come up with some historical explanation of why the church grew. And the thing is, I'll just say, there's no good explanation except that something really happened that transformed all the early leaders. Because at, at Jesus' um, trial and crucifixion, they scatter, they're scared, they're fearful. These are people who are defeated. Now, there had been other Messianic movements. There had been lots of movements where somebody said, this, so-and-so is the Messiah, he's the new leader, but they failed. They typically failed when the, their Messianic leader was killed. So Christianity, though, was the one Messianic movement that took off. And if you ask Christians what was different, the difference was they said, our leader was resurrected. They went around and they said, the thing that's different, the thing that's energizing us, the thing that makes the church a church is the resurrection. So the early Christians, they say their answer for why the church grew was the resurrection. That was the answer that they gave. No other movement did that. No other movement did that. Um, I want to read you something um, that a historian wrote. and He said, In not one single case do we hear the slightest mention of the disappointed followers of other movements claiming that their hero had been raised from the dead. They knew better. Remember, we just said, this is a preposterous claim. People don't say people rise from the dead and people don't believe it. So he said this never happened. Resurrection was not a private event. Jewish revolutionaries whose leader had been executed by the authorities and who managed to escape a arrest themselves had two options. They either gave up on the revolution or they found another leader. Claiming that the original leader was alive again was simply not an option, unless, of course, he was. So, Christians from the beginning said, the reason the church grew is this belief in the resurrection. And you might say, well, no, maybe they made it up later, but that's just not the case. If you look at all of the New Testament documents, which were many of which were written in 15, 20 years after the events, um, they proclaimed the resurrection, the physical resurrection as the key event. In fact, if you look at 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about, I pass on what I received. So he's and so most scholars say what he's what he's describing those first few verses is the creed that he received from James and from Peter, what the earliest disciples, apostles in the church believed, which was the reality of the resurrection. So this was the belief from the beginning. So whether they were mistaken or not, that's what the early Christians believed. Now, you need an explanation for the growth of the church. And one of the amazing things about the growth of the church is that first century religions were not ethnically reversed diverse. As you as you probably know from reading the scriptures, Jews did not associate with Gentiles. So what you would need a force strong enough to create an ethnically and sociologically e- economically diverse religion when that never happened. So Christianity was utterly unique in bridging every divide. How? You need an explanation for what could do that. And you need an explanation for what would motivate jews to stop observing the rituals to stop observing sabbath to suddenly after thousands of years to say now our day of rest and worship is sunday we're going to come together to worship a man as god right something that was completely anathema on sunday what would motivate them to do that well This is clearly what they believed, was that Jesus had risen from the dead in bodily form. Now, you might say, well, maybe they were wrong, or maybe they were lying. But here's the thing, there were so many witnesses that there would have had to be mass hallucinations. And the thing is, mass hallucinations don't happen. Maybe I hallucinate something, maybe you hallucinate. But 500 people don't all see the same thing at the same time. And if it was a conspiracy, the thing is, you know, virtually all the early church leaders were killed. You don't die for a lie. Maybe, you know, the first person would. But eventually, if this was all just a big lie, you know, the six people in front of you have been killed, you say, well, you know, we've had enough. All right, I was kidding. But that's not what happened, right? And the idea that it was developed later, it doesn't fit the timing or the locations of the facts. So for example, the church started in Jerusalem. That's where the church started, historical fact. Where was Jesus crucified? In Jerusalem. So if you go around in the city where he was killed and you tell people he's alive, there better be really good evidence because people can say, look, I was here last week and he was dead. I watched it. So for the church to take off in the city where he was killed, right after, immediately after he was killed, something had to have happened. Now, one example of the growth of the church that you have to explain like a microcosm is the most unexpected of all converts, which, of course, is the Apostle Paul. Now, Paul, whose whose Hebrew name would be Saul, Saul persecuted the church. He was a rising star in Judaism. He had nothing to gain by leaving the Pharisees. He had everything to gain by staying a Pharisee. He was gonna progress, he would have a life of power, of influence, of comfort, and yet he left Phariseeism to join the group that he persecuted. In fact, he spent the rest of his life being beaten, being tortured, being shipwrecked, um, being stoned. Why? To to build up this, this religion that he had persecuted. It just it boggles the mind to say, well, he was in it for his own personal gain. And on every occasion, when Paul was asked, why do you do this? Every occasion, he always gave the same testimony. I met the risen Jesus. Paul's, at least what Paul believed is, why would I do this? Because I met the risen Jesus. Paul certainly believed that he met the physically bodily resurrected Jesus. So that's, that's the explanation Paul gives. So either they're all wrong, which is a very challenging historical explanation. The hundreds and thousands of people who gave their lives to this movement and did things that was, were historically implausible at the time, they all did it for the same reason. They believed in the resurrection. So can we believe it historically? I think there's very good historical evidence and it's very, very, very difficult to explain historically all of these things. You might say scientifically, well, resurrection just doesn't happen, so I just rule the whole thing out. But that still leaves you with you need to explain the rise of the early church and these various historical facts. And if you assume away the only credible explanation, then you're not going to find a credible explanation. So can you believe it historically? But finally, can you believe it emotionally? And I want to say first, the answer is yes and no. And let me say why no. Nobody really, who really understands Christianity disbelieves Christianity because they don't think it promises enough. The promise is always that God promises too much. Resurrection, remember, is not a disembodied existence. It's not just a consolation prize, like, oh, things were bad, but now you get something good. Resurrection is the restoration of all of creation. It's not consolation, it's restoration. It's a physical eternity perfectly united with God. And frankly, that's too good to be true. It feels too much. You know, if God promised less, maybe we'd be okay with that. But this, you know, that everything will be made right. That our physical world will last for eternity, that there will be no death and yet we'll have physical bodies, that we will have these physical bodies and yet be perfectly united to God. In, like It just seems impossible. Why doesn't God promise less? So in some sense, it seems too good to be true. And you know what? It is too good to be true, unless it's true. This is why the Jews didn't believe it. That's why it took the evidence of a man who they saw crucified, risen bodily that they could touch for them to believe and to be willing to go and go to their deaths proclaiming this. They said it's not too good to be true. It's only because we have seen the resurrected Jesus that we can believe this for ourselves. So no, it's too hard to believe But I also think it's the only thing we can believe emotionally. Because I don't think there's any other hope that affirms both both the goodness and the brokenness of our created world. Because any you live on in an ethereal, disembodied reality, or you lose your personality and you dissolve into the great oneness of of the world, you know, any of this escaping the present reality does not affirm the goodness of this world. Because everything that's good about this world will be gone. Everything that's good about love between persons is gone if you just, like a do, drop of dew, drop into, you know, the ocean of the world. Like that doesn't affirm the goodness. Um, but the belief that, well, you know, the bad things that happen here are just an illusion or well you die and that's it that doesn't really affirm the brokenness and the injustice either and i think that we we long for the goodness of this world to continue we long for relationships and love and beauty and goodness and we and the physical things that we experience we want to continue experience them and only the resurrection offers that hope and it's the only hope that can get you through anything I I promise you any anything short of resurrection bought by the blood of Jesus cannot get you through anything you know the secular hope is well we'll make the world a better place and so we say this will end or we'll get through this. But we know that that's a lie. Sometimes we won't get through this. Sometimes we get sick and we die. And that's it. What's the hope? Or sometimes we're suffering and we fail. We don't suffer well. So if it counts on us to suffer well, to, you know, reach eternity, we know that we can't count on ourselves. But the resurrection bought by Jesus, by his suffering and death, and by his raising from the grave, That is a hope that can get us through anything. So can I believe it emotionally? I think it's the only real credible hope that we can believe emotionally. So I'll leave you with those thoughts. Can we believe it historically? I think we have to. Can we believe it emotionally? I don't think our hearts long for anything less.